This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. Good afternoon, good evening. Um, I'm Susan Zesch, Director of the Human Rights Program, and I would like to welcome you to the first Human Rights Distinguished Lecture of the 2006-2007 academic year. Um, before introducing this evening's speaker, I would like to let everyone know here that this talk will be available for podcasting on the Center for International Studies and Human Rights Program's websites. So if you have friends who weren't able to make it, you can tell them they'll be able to hear this evening's talk there, as well as last year's distinguished lectures. Um, this year, I have a couple of upcoming events I want to highlight for people. Um, this evening's speaker, Jillian Slovo, as I will repeat in a minute when I do a formal introduction, is one of the co-authors of the play Guantanamo Honor Bound to Defend Freedom. We will be having a free staged reading of the play on Tuesday, November 28th at Court Theater, directed by Nick Ruddle, who's the founding director of Court Theater, and with a cast of volunteer actors drawn from uh, Chicago's various professional theater companies. So this is, we'll do another round of posters on campus and citywide publicity and hope everyone can come to the play. Then um, on December 4th, we're going to have a forum on police torture in Chicago in its international context. We picked December 4th because it is the anniversary of the 1969 assassination by Cook County Sheriff's Police of two Black Panther leaders in the city of Chicago, Fred Hampton and Mark Clark, who were murdered in their beds on Chicago's west side. Um, an event that set off a series of political transformations in the city, which I think led to the election of Chicago's first African-American mayor in 1983 and the opening up of the secrets of police torture on Chicago's South Side that had taken place in the 1970s and early 1980s. Um, I really want to welcome people on behalf of the Human Rights Program because part of our mission is connecting theory, classes, and practice. And we are, because we are an interdisciplinary program, a place where the problems and questions of human rights are addressed from a variety of disciplines. We're very pleased tonight to have Jillian Slovo as our first lecturer of the 2006-2007 series. Last year, we somehow managed to have three lawyers as our distinguished lecturers, and all men. And this year, I said, it's going to be women, and it's going to be the arts. So we're very pleased that Jillian Slovo is here in the fall. In the spring quarter, our lecturer, sometime in April, will be the Hyde Park and nationally renowned novelist Sarah Paretsky. Um, in the winter quarter, we're going to have a political scientist from Mexico, Sergio Aguayo, who's a leading human rights advocate, but I guess we had to let the men have one of the lectures this year. Um, Jillian Slovo was born in South Africa in 1952. Um, she was raised in, Eng in England following the exile of uh, her family from the age of 12 on. She's the author of 10 books. Um, her most recent book is Ice Road, which is a novel. Um, she lives in London, and she co-authored the Guantanamo play with Victoria Britton. The play has been presented in London. It has been presented in New York. It was here in Chicago. Um, at the, I think it's Lifeline Theater on the north side, and we'll be very pleased to be presenting it on Tuesday, November 28th here at Chord Theater. One of the wonderful things about the play is when you write to the authors and the theater which first presented it for permission to use the play is that the condition on its production is that the play should be used to raise money for the defense of prisoners in Guantanamo, um, and the copyright is actually held by the Center for Constitutional Rights, who in this week's news filed a lawsuit in Germany to have Donald Rumsfeld indicted as a war criminal. So um, the proceeds from the uh, November 28th reading of the play will be going to the Center for Constitutional Rights, and the legal director of the center, Bill Goodman, who is a double alum of this university, has his JD and his bachelor's degree from here, is coming to speak in a post-play discussion. 
So Julian Slovo, I think, is very much in context as the author of a play which presents things that were hidden from us for a very long time, and we're very pleased to be welcoming her to the Human Rights Program at the University of Chicago. Thank you. Um, one of the privileges of um, bringing some of the stories of Guantanamo um, to the theater is that through it, I have made contact not only with local audiences, gosh, sorry, long distant eyes, I'm gonna have to hold this up here. <laughs> Angels, but no light. Um, I've made, made contact um, not only with local audiences, but also with people all over the world who share a concern about the way human rights are under attack in um, our current world. So thanks to the organizers for inviting me here to speak on the subject. It is indeed a privilege. I'm going to begin with two stories. The stories concern two very different men. They have most certainly never met each other and most probably have not heard of each other either. And yet they each found themselves caught up in a strikingly similar set of events in which they could neither understand nor control. The first man, let's call him Bisha, was Iraqi-born. Bisha is one of two sons of a well-off Iraqi businessman. The father, like many other Iraqis during Saddam Hussein's um, reign, was arrested by, the, by Saddam's secret service and kept in prison without charge, in, this case, in his case for a year and a half. When he was finally released, again without charge, the family decided that they could no longer live in Saddam's Iraq. They moved away from Iraq, making their new home in Britain, where Bisha attended a top-rate secondary school and then college. We'll pass over his early years, um, which were apparently uneventful, and fast forward to 2002, when Bisha, a devout Muslim, is about to leave Britain on a business trip. His brother has um, hit on the seemingly crazy notion of setting up a series of, and yes, this is correct, mobile peanut processing plants in the African country of the Gambia. And Bisha is going with to help. He plans to be in the Gambia for only a month, two weeks of working and two weeks of holidaying around. But as Bisha and one of his brother's partners are about to board their plane in London, they are arrested. The police accuse them of having a suspect item in their luggage and detain them in London's maximum security um, um, police station. When their lawyers prove that the so-called suspicious item is in fact a battery charger that can be bought at any good hardware store, the two are released without charge. They then take the next plane to Gambia to meet Bisha's brother. On arrival, however, they, along with Bisha's brother and the driver who had come with him, um, are arrested by the Gambian police. At the police station there, they meet two men, two foreigners, two Americans, and they take charge of the interrogation. And here is Bisha's brother's account of one of the interrogations and why they, what they told them that they were suspected of doing. One idea, he says, was that we were in the Gambia to build a training camp. The division of labors as follows. I was the cover going to run the business. One of my partners was to keep an eye on me just in case I did something wrong, so he was to be my policeman. And my brother, my brother Bisha, because of his skills, is supposed to be the trainer of the camp. I said, have you found any training equipment or military stuff? They said, no. I said, my brother is supposed to be training these people, but he has only a visa for one month. How can he set up a camp and train people in one month? At the next meeting, they brought another theory. We were supposed to come to the Gambia to blow up something. So I told him, OK, name two targets in the Gambia that are worth blowing up. And he could only name one, the American Embassy. <laughs> there, there aren't any targets in the Gambia, point one. Point two is, 
If I was coming to blow up something, why would I come through the airport? You have 200 miles of porous borders, no police, no nothing. I could have easily slipped through these borders. And third, where is the equipment that I was supposed to use to blow up anything? Have you found a bullet or a gun or explosives? No. Having sat through these interrogations, Bisha's brother is suddenly released and put on a plane back to England. Not so Bisha and the brother's partner. They are detained for a further period. The family hire, families hire lawyers to bring a case of habeas corpus under Gambian law. But just as the case is due for hearing, the two men are flown out of the country and taken to the prison camp in Guantanamo, where they are some four years later. No one can say how long they might be there. No one really knows of what it is that they are accused. That, in summary, is how Bisha's nightmare began. And now I'm going to talk about the second of the men. Let's call him Joseph, whose story I'm going to tell. And the details of Joseph's story are less well known. What we have been able to uncover is that Joseph was suddenly and unexpectedly arrested again by two men. Joseph has no idea why this has happened. He wonders, and I quote, what sort of people were they? What were they talking about? To which authority did they belong? After all, he lived in a country which enjoyed law and order. There was universal peace, all the laws were upheld, so who dared pounce on him in his own home? Unlike Bisha, Joseph was not taken to Guantanamo. He was put on trial on charges he never could discover. Released on his own recognizance and back at work, he was nevertheless not quite free. His trial was coming up, although he didn't know when. In the time that he awaited it, he tried desperately to negotiate the system into which he had been entrapped, and while he did so, we learned a few things about him. Although we didn't discover his religious affiliations, we can infer that he was living either in Czechoslovakia or Germany and was presumably a citizen of one of these two European countries. We also know that he did have some family, at least a niece and an uncle are mentioned, and that he had, for some long time, been working in a high-ranking clerk's job in a bank. While Bisha sat in Guantanamo, not knowing whether he would ever be brought to trial, and if so, on what charges, Joseph's fate was to run from lawyer to lawyer, trying to uncover the unknown machinations of the court into which he had become entangled. His was an ordeal also of long duration, but unlike Bisha's, Joseph's ordeal did finally come to, the e come to an end. On the eve of his 31st birthday, two men, again two, but two different men, came for him. Already exhausted by the pre-trial run-up, he was compliant. He went with them and finally, without ever having heard his sentence or for that matter the charges against him, he was killed, as he said in his dying words, like a dog. Two men, two similar stories of individuals caught up in an incomprehensible and tyrannical system. But the first man is a real man. It, the story, his story relates the fate that has befallen the Iraqi-born British resident Bisha al-Rawi, who is even now incarcerated in Guantanamo, where, according to one of his lawyers, he is slowly going mad. And the second story is different. It is a piece of fiction. It is the story of Joseph K., known in shorthand as K., as told by Franz Kafka in his unfinished novel, The Trial, that was published after Kafka's death in 1926. The trial's popularity has been enduring. It is still read as one of the most famous literary metaphors to illuminate aspects of 20th century oppression by an unaccountable system. From it comes the phrase Kafkaesque, used to describe the twists and turns of injustice without rhyme, reason, or remedy. It's a phrase that came easily to my mind when, with Victoria Britain, I started researching our play on Guantanamo. And so when I was planning this lecture, I thought it might be worth returning to Kafka and his text. I read the trial again so as to satisfy my own curiosity as to how relevant it was. And what struck me with this rereading was not the differences between the Kafka's 1920s surreal world and the real-life stories of Guantanamo inmates, 
but the many astonishing similarities. Take, for example, British citizen Mozam Beg's account of his incarceration in Guantanamo. Beg has since been released without charge. He describes how in his first interrogation he was told that if I didn't sign a confession they had written for me, several different things could happen, none of them good. They included sitting in Guantanamo for many years before anybody even looked at my case, then a summary trial, a formality before conviction. It's going to be one very short trial, they said. They're going to look at the evidence we present and they're going to take it out on face value. That means you'll be imprisoned for life or you could face execution or both, execution after a very long time. And reading what Begg said, I couldn't help hearing echoes of Kay's experience because Kafka trapped Kay in a court system of which a habitué says, I've listened to countless proceedings when they were at a critical stage and kept up with them as long as they were visible and I must confess I've never been present at a single actual acquittal. And this is what Kafka's Kay's warders have to tell him. They say, our authorities do not go in search of guilt in the population, but are, as it says in the law, drawn to guilt and must send us warders out. That is law. Where could there be a mistake in that? A sentiment echoed by President Bush. For as the British law lord, Lord Justice Johann Sein says, the president has made public in advance his personal view of the prisoners as a group. He has described them all as killers. And this in 2003, before many of the names of the detainees were even known. At the same time, high-level Bush administration officials continue to characterize Guantanamo detainees as the worst of the worst before any of them had been charged, never mind undergone a trial on such charges. As to the, as to the legal procedure of Kafka's trial, and here again I quote, the proceedings were not held in public. They could, if the court deemed it necessary, be held in public, but the law did not stipulate this. As a consequence, the written records of the court, and in particular the document recording the accusation, were not available to the accused and his defending counsel. So it was not known in general, or at least not exactly, where the first plea had to be directed against. So really, it could be only fortuitous if it contained anything of significance for the case. Now compare this to American lawyer Joseph Margili's description of the subsequently um, successful case, Rasul and others versus George W. Bush, that Margulies and his fellow lawyers took on behalf of Guantanamo detainees. And this is what he says about taking it out. He says, the administration lawyers did not merely ask the court to dismiss the case. They took the position that our clients should not be allowed to know that litigation had started. We are not allowed to speak or meet with our clients. We could not even send them a copy of the lawsuit. Rasul, Margolis continued, is apparently the first case in more than 150 years in which the subjects of the litigation did not know that a case was underway on their behalf. So far, so Kafkaesque. Just one more example, one final incident that so easily earns itself the same epitaph. And it concerns a British citizen, a man who, like Bishar al-Rawi and all the Guantanamo detainees, is a Muslim. This man's name is Rizwan Ahmed. Ahmed was detained by the British Special Branch on his return from a short trip to Berlin. He was soon released, but before that, he was told that he had no right to a lawyer, was given a Terrorism Act detention form that said he could be held for up to 48 hours without charge, and then was questioned about his political allegiances. Do you do your job, he was asked, because you know to publicize the struggles of Muslim. And then he was asked what he thought about the Iraq war and everything that was going on, and whether he minded if there were officers who, and I quote, contact you regularly in the future in case, for example, you might be in a cafe and you might overhear someone discussing illegal activities. Just part of the modern world, you might think. The world in which we put in place new precautions to safeguard ourselves from the growing threat of terrorism. No Kafka in that.
But the thing that makes Rizwan Ahmed's detention Kafkaesque is the thing that triggered it. For Rizwan Ahmed is not an activist, he is an actor. He fell under suspicion, not for anything he had done in his own life, but because he had played the part of a former Guantanamo detainee who himself had been released without charge in Michael Winterbottom's award-winning film, The Road to Guantanamo. Guilt by association, even on celluloid. The character Ahmed played in the film was a man, Shafiq Rasul. His name is on the lawsuit mentioned above that was taken up against the American government by Margulies and others. And Rastul's story is, story is briefly as follows. He and his three friends had journeyed from England to Pakistan for a wedding, they said, and then on to Afghanistan. Caught up in the fighting and having lost one of their number, who is presumed dead, the three remaining friends ended up in Guantanamo where they spent two years, years before they were all three released without charge. They are known collectively as the Tipton Three because they're all old school friends who come from Tipton, which is an urban offshoot of the city of Birmingham in the UK. And it was to Tipton that Victoria Britton and I travelled when we first started our research for the play. Our task was the creation of a documentary play about Guantanamo, prompted perhaps by the success of David Hare's The Permanent Way, I'm not sure it's come here, which is it's a, a verbatim play about the privatisation of the British railways that contributed to rail disasters in which many lives were lost, the artistic director of the Tricycle Theatre, Nicholas Kent, had commissioned me to write a play to be based entirely on the spoken word of people involved in Guantanamo. It was then February 2004, and at that time there were over 700 men in the prison camp, and many of them had already been there for two years. Our aim was to construct a play from the experiences of just a few of these men, the British citizens and British residents who had found themselves entrapped in Guantanamo. To this effect, we put out feelers to all the families, asking if we might come and interview them. Some of them, burned by hostile press attention and the assumption of guilt that accompanied the incarceration of their relatives, did not want to see us. Others welcomed us into their homes and told us their stories. And it turned out to be quite a journey for us. Because before travelling to see the families, I had naturally read everything that I could about them and their experiences. And yet, what I discovered by meeting them was greatly at odds with the impression that had been formed in my mind. Take the phrase, for example, the Tipton Three, that had been given to Shafiq Rasul and his two friends by the press. It conjured up an image of this place, Tipton, as a hotbed of Islamic fundamentalism and jihad. And yet, going there, what I found was a depressed area on the outskirts of Birmingham in which only a handful of roads housed Muslims. Around them was laid the rest of Tipton, an area mostly white and English and mostly poor, which happened to be a hotbed of far-right political activity. In fact, the Tipton Three um, had effigies of themselves hung up, well, the, the far right hung effigies of them up from the lampposts. And I, to give you a flavor of what this is like is, the people who hung the effigies actually had gone to the same school and gone to school with these three young men. The families we talked to were trying to survive in this atmosphere, and the tales they told were the tales of ordinary people who had found themselves caught up in an extraordinary, and can I say it again, a Kafkaesque situation. They told us about the disappearances of their sons and brothers, and they told us about the knock on the door and that policeman who had come to tell them that their relatives had been taken to a place whose existence they had not previously dreamed of and were going to be held there on charges that were not known for a period of time also not known and that there was nothing, absolutely nothing, that they could do about this. Their relatives had in fact been trapped as Justice Stain has called it, in this legal black hole, and all of this in the name of democracy. Their situation was impossibly incomprehensible to them, partly because it defied all expectations of those who live in a democracy. As Mozambique's father told us, and anybody who would listen, 
If my son has done anything wrong, he should be brought back to this country. Let him see his wife, his children, and us. Let him be normal. If he is medically and physical or, or physically all right, take him to court and let the court decide whether he is guilty or not. If he is guilty, he should be punished. If he is not guilty, he shouldn't be there for a second. This is a human rights issue. I'm not asking for mercy from anyone. I'm asking justice. Mozambique was held in Guantanamo for at least another year after his father talked to us. But almost as soon as we had embarked on our first interviews, the Tipton Three, along with two other British detainees, were freed. They were thrown from Guantanamo to England, where four of the five former detainees were held overnight by the English police before being released without charge. And their release gave our small theatrical team pause. We discussed the fear that our not-yet-written play would soon be out of date, and we wondered whether we should stop researching it. Guantanamo, we thought, might soon be closed. Perhaps what we were doing was no longer relevant. In the end, we decided to go on. We were, after all, only planning a short three-week run in a local London theatre, and the releases had also provided us with the opportunity to get the inside story, because now we had the opportunity to interview one of Guantanamo's former detainees. And he was a man called Jamal al-Harith, and he was one of the first of the five, the one of the five released, who on arriving back in British soil had not even been cursorily detained. He was, he was let off the plane and out. Um, Jamal was given his immediate release for a very simple reason, that everybody knew that he, a British tourist, could not possibly have fought with the Taliban since by war's outbreak, he was actually sitting in a Taliban jail. He was accused of being a British spy by the Taliban. He was freed from this jail only after the Northern Alliance had driven the Taliban away. And then, instead of getting passage back to the UK as the Red Cross had promised he would, he ended up incarcerated in Guantanamo. And yet, despite this being common and well-documented knowledge, Jamal al-Harith was still held in Guantanamo for gone two years. Out of Jamal's story and Bisha's and Mozambique's and others, I compiled a play that ended up mirroring the journey I had taken it is the story of a rapidly and oddly changing world. The story of ordinary people caught up in an extraordinary moment where democratically elected politicians have argued, often successfully, that the new threat of terrorism requires the abolition of formerly sacred legal safeguards. It is the story of young men accused, it appears, on flimsy evidence. The Tipton Three, for example, were saved from being charged with having been at an Al-Qaeda camp at a particular time, only because the British police um, uncovered evidence that they all three were in, undoubtedly in England during all that same time. I mean, one of them had his tax records from working in a local supermarket, and the other two, I think, um, were on, charge, on charges for some petty thievery, so that the police knew exactly where they had been. And it is a story that has long outlasted our theatrical team's fear that we might have come to it too late. Not only was the real Guantanamo still overflowing with detainees during our play's initial three-week run, but despite subsequent detainee releases, it is still packed and it was packed during our London West End debut and when the play was put on in places as diverse as New York, Auckland, San Francisco, Florence, Washington DC, Chicago and Lahore, Pakistan. And I suppose it's a reason to celebrate for us that we have spoken to so many people, but it's a reason also to mourn for it is the continued existence of Guantanamo, the prison, that has ensured our play such an enduring presence on stage. And there is another story of Guantanamo which we hinted at in our play and which the months since it was first put out have underlined, and it is this, that Guantanamo is witness to the worldwide acceptance of vastly differing standards of justice for people depending on where they were born. Lord Stain spoke about this in a speech, a portion of which we used in our play. He said, and I quote, at Guantanamo Bay, 
a courtroom with execution chamber nearby has apparently been constructed, but the British prisoners will not be liable to be executed. The Attorney General has negotiated a separate agreement with the Pentagon on the treatment of British prisoners. He has apparently received a promise that the British prisoners of law, war will not face the death penalty. This gives a new dimension to the concept of most favored nation treatment in international law. And he goes on to say, how could it be morally defensible to discriminate in this way between individual prisoners? It lifts a curtain a little on the arbitrariness of what is happening at Guantanamo Bay and in the corridors of power on both sides of the Atlantic. And since Lord Steyn has delivered that speech in 2003, the curtain has even been further lifted, for there are now no British citizens left in Guantanamo. They, nine of them, have all been released and returned to England without charge. This was evidently a result of the pressure put on the American government by the British government, which has since gone on record as preferring Guantanamo to be closed. And yet, Amongst the ongoing um, detainees is the man whom we, I started this with, Bisha al-Rawi. And why? It's because Bisha, unlike the rest of his family, never took out British citizenship. He didn't do this because the family, having fled Saddam's Iraq, had to leave behind much of their property. They reasoned that one day Saddam would be gone and then they could return. But if they did, they also reasoned, they might not be able to claim back their property without Iraqi citizenship. And so it was decided that the younger son, Bisha, already in possession of British residency, would not apply for British citizenship, but instead would keep his Iraqi passport for the day when Saddam went. And it is for this reason, as far as anybody can tell, that Bisha's um, brother, a British citizen, was released from custody in the Gambia and that Bisha, an Iraqi citizen, about whom subsequent evidence has been produced that he was actually cooperating with British intelligence, is still held in that legal black hole. And Guantanamo is only the tip of the iceberg. Its existence is the precursor of a gamut of new laws that restrict civil liberties. There is a sea change happening in our world that in Britain has been made visible by measures as disparate as the issuing of antisocial behaviour orders that can be given out by the police without recourse to the courts on difficult teenagers and the government attempt, so far unsuccessful, to detain terrorist suspects without trial for a period of 90 days. Now, I am South African born and I have to say the term 90 days brings shivers to my spine for 90 days was the period that political prisoners could once be held again and again, as the then South African Prime Minister said, until eternity. I think it's interesting the British actually chose the same number. But as one of our interviewees, Solicitor Greg Powell, said about this in our play, he said, add these measures together and you slightly reinvent the world. These new laws can be made applicable to you so effectively that you have this fantastic level of social control by some individuals inside the community. And having done it to terrorists, you can just extend it to the whole population of people who upset you because they commit crimes. So you can enter a whole new area, era of social control. And finally, Greg Powell concludes, you can't start to think like this unless something like Guantanamo exists. And if we accept Greg Powell's analysis, and I think there is much that has happened since to back it up, how long will it take before we reach a moment like the one Kafka writes about in the trial, when Kay pronounces on his innocence only to hear the question coming back, innocent of what? Um, that's Guantanamo in the world. Let me talk a bit about Guantanamo um, in the theater and, and why I think it was spoke to people. And ours is by no means the first or the only documentary play to receive such widespread attention. There are, among many others, the exonerated in the US, which is about people on death row who have subsequently proved guilt, um, innocent. There was David Hare's already mentioned railway play, The Permanent Way, 
David Hare's stuff happens about the decision to go to war in Iraq, and more recently in Britain, there is the new and acclaimed Black Watch, which is a documentary play about a Scottish army regiment in Iraq. In the big screen as well, we are witness to the resurgence of the popularity of a feature documentary, Michael Moore's work and Al Gore's being the ones that spring most readily to mind. And much has been debated in Britain as to why documentaries are increasingly so popular. Answers have included changes to television programming, which has seen the replacement of the grand British tradition of the television documentary with reality programs, Big Brother and the like. I'm not sure if you get Big Brother. Um, I think the whole world does. Because of this, it is argued, audiences have a thirst for more serious programming, something the theatre is expected to supply. And of course, the documentary play is not a new phenomenon. Um, Professor Artili Favorini of the University of Pittsburgh dates the first um, such play to 492 BC when Phrynichus produced the capture of Miletus about the Persian War. But perhaps also, the recent upsurge in documentary plays is a response to the changes that have rocked our political world, making audiences more willing to um, engage with these issues, and writers perhaps less willing to invent. Perhaps the old writer's adage, truth can be stranger than fiction, is truer than now than ever. But to these explanations, and with Kafka in mind, I now somewhat mischievously propose another explanation, and it is this. Kafka's The Trial is a piece of fiction, and it is a prolonged metaphor about a man trapped in an incomprehensible system. But the things Kafka wrote about in 1926 have in this new century been brought to life. Guantanamo is not a metaphor, it is reality. So are we going to the theatre to see reality enacted? Do we, that way, turn it from reality into somebody else's drama? In short, are we watching reality in the theatre because it helps us with the powerlessness we experience to change, worlds outside, change the world outside of the theatre? And one last observation gleaned from the interviews that I used to structure into the play and that is the part that the security services have played in changing our world. The story of the actor Rizwan Armand is a case in point. Having been detained, if only temporarily, as a result of his role in a film, and having been questioned as to his political allegiances, the police declaration of his innocence is accompanied by his being asked to report on his own community. This is a story I heard more than once during the interviews, although the story was often told in reverse, i.e., in other cases, the police first approached the individuals to ask if they would report on their communities, and on being told no, arrested these same people. Bishar al-Rawi seems to be a case in point. There is now growing evidence that Bishar was helping MI5, which is British intelligence, in their bid to question the suspect preacher, Abu Qatada, and then it seems MI5 must have told the Americans that Bisha was on his way to the Gambia because how else would he have been so quickly picked up? The picture that builds up from these examples is of an intelligence service desperate for intelligence but at a loss as how to find it. This is partly where Guantanamo comes from, the alienation of the intelligence services from those communities who, with whom they most need contact. Their failure to make these links has led them to support more and more draconian measures, and as they do, they undercut the very basis of the West's claim to a superior moral code. You don't get to be in Guantanamo unless you are male and unless you are Muslim. That is the lesson that Muslims all over the world are taking from its continued existence. And so, as the security services desperately seek to prop up the stability and integrity of Western societies, so their desperation is leading them through their attack on civil liberties to make them weaker and more fragile. We might indeed, as our politi politicians keep telling us, be living in new times. These times might indeed demand new measures, 
but it is, I think, at our peril, or perhaps at the peril of people we do not know that will eventually impact on us, that we unthinkingly allow the abolition of safeguards that were put in place many years ago to prevent injustice. Thank you. Questions, comments? I'll start calling on people. <laughs> Norma? <That's not> <laughs> Go ahead. No, I think it's a very interesting question, and I'm not sure that I have the answer for it. Um, but I think it is one of the problems facing us. And I, I, I have to say that I think the media has some responsibility in this regard. That, you know, my experience, of, as I was saying about the Tipton Three, is that you can't help when you read the way the articles are written about these people who have disappeared off the face, you can't help thinking there's no smoke without fire. You know, you can't help thinking, well, what were they doing in Afghanistan? And to me, it's very unclear what were they doing in Afghanistan. I think they were on a boy's own adventure, you know, as young men. They decided to go and help the Muslim world against the um, invader. I'm not sure they ever picked up a gun or anything, and it doesn't merit being in Guantanamo for that. But, but I think that the fact is that, the, that there has been a certain hysteria built up in the media because we all do feel threatened. And we all do feel threatened for reasons that we know, for 9-11 for and for in England, the bombing in the tube. And I suppose people find it easier if they think that some of the people who have done this are locked up away from us. And that that somehow makes us feel safer. And I suppose what, what our job is to try and tell people that the very thing that you think is making you feel safer is the thing that's making um, life more dangerous for you. Because Guantanamo has become a rallying cry for people, for Muslims across the world to say, look what they do. Look what they do to you if you're, if you're, if you're a Muslim. Um, and so that, in a sense, it is a recruiting ground for people to, you know, to, to fuel people's anger against the West and against what our governments are doing. And I suppose that is the only counter-argument you can use, but it's a, it's a very sophisticated argument. And, I mean, some of the problem, I think, is, you know, there seems no doubt that a lot of the people who went to Guantanamo, and I'm not talking about the 20 that they recently, just before the election, um, dumped in Guantanamo in order to prove that there were, in fact, some Al-Qaeda people there. Um, but most of the people who actually went to Guantanamo in, in the beginning were picked off what was said, what Rumsfeld said, was off the battlefield. In fact, we know that they weren't all off the battlefield because Gambia was not the battlefield, and Mozambique was take, kidnapped from um, Pakistan, and quite a lot of people were taken from Pakistan. But partly what seems to have happened is that in the chaos of war, the American intelligence did not have people who spoke the languages. So they couldn't tell who was who in this crazy situation where the Taliban are going out and the Northern Alliance are coming in. So the way that they dealt with the problem was they said anybody who, who um, finds a foreign fighter who's been working for Al-Qaeda would get 5,000 US dollars. Now, 5,000 US dollars is an enormous amount of money. 
for anybody in Afghanistan. And so what they did is, they, of course, they picked people that either they had an enmity with or they just didn't know and didn't care about and told the Americans, this is one of them, this is one of them. And then there was no way of interrogating those people and actually discovering who they were and who they weren't, you know, where, why, what they were doing in Afghanistan. So all of them got taken to Guantanamo. And at that point, they just disappeared into this maniacal system. And I think it's things like that that people need to be told because I think people just believe that our society you don't get jailed for no reason. Well, Guantanamo is where you do get jailed for no reason. I mean, I think that's a good question. So I think I am um, probably attracted to this subject. And, you know, when I was asked to do it, it was a perfect subject to me, partly because of my background in South Africa, partly because I witnessed um, what a tyrannical state can do to people. And, you know, that's why I said 90 days sends shivers down my spine because my parents, my mother was held for 90 days, which, you know, turned out to be longer in South Africa. And I, I suppose I have also witnessed this thing that I ended the talk with, which is the fact that as a state becomes more despotic and starts trying to control the opposition more and more, what it often does is provoke the opposition. That certainly happened in South Africa. You know, that, that the South African apartheid got trapped in a system where the only way they could control the majority of the country was by more and more despotic laws. And people at a certain point just had enough and said, you know, we're not going to put up with this anymore. And by, by the time enough people in a society do that, you know, you can't keep the lid on any longer. So I suppose the experience of that has made me more interested and more passionate about seeing this happen in a different way and seeing this happen in the name of democracy. Um, I didn't really have a choice about which um, form to use because the commission was from the Tricycle Theatre to do a documentary play and the Tricycle Theatre has, has had a history and has a growing reputation for doing what it calls its tribunal plays where they take a tribunal or a trial and basically edit it down and act it on the stage. And so, for example, they did the Nuremberg trial, they did the Bloody Sunday inquiry, they did the inquiry about the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. For, for those people who don't, you probably don't know who Stephen Lawrence was. He was a, a young black Londoner who was brutally murdered in a racist murder, and there was a complete failure by the racist police to investigate the murder, and they actually let the murderers off. And, Sometime later, there was a long inquiry into why the police had been like this. So that was enacted. So the project was to do a documentary play, which is difficult for me because I'm actually a fiction writer. I think in this case that the power of people's words really helped bring home to audiences what this is about, perhaps more than than it would have done if I had written this as a fictional play. Because I think there was a certain authenticity, particularly for these people who were in such a bad state and were actually, you know, that their talking to us was a cry of help. Somebody listened to us. This is what happened. You know, I went to the Gambia and I've never seen my brother again. And is it my fault? It, that, so I think that gave it power. I think some of the problems of doing a documentary play, which, is, which you don't get if you're doing a, a, a dra pure drama, is how you find the drama. Because you, know, you can only use what other people say. Um, I, I know, for example, quite a lot of documentary um, film directors 
And they all want to do drama in the end because they get frustrated by the fact that when you're doing a documentary film, you know what you want to say, but you have to kind of force ordinary people to say it for you because <laughs> you can't make it up. And so that's the logic to go to fiction and just make it up and say it, you know better. But I think in this particular case, it was the very ordinariness of the people and it was also the way they spoke that gave the piece power. Um, I mean, obviously, uh, by the, uh, I think your statement that there is authenticity in it, yes, uh, and that the voices come through, yes, but it's still you who structures uh, mm -hmm. the play, and I wondered if you could talk a little about this, how you, how you did it. Well, I did it very, very fast, I have to say, because we were in a great hurry, given that Guantanamo was being closed down, um, <laughs> to produce this. And I, d I was very, very pleased that, you know, when I first started writing, I um, wrote crime novels. And the thing about writing crime is that you have to have a very good sense of structure embedded in you because it's the plot that keeps you driving. And I think, and I, and I haven't thought about plot so much because I've started writing other things and it's not so important to me, the plot, the characters is more important. But I think that early training in writing crime helped me with this because I think I have a slight inbuilt idea of how you tell a story and what the story I decided to tell was actually the journey that I made which is to come across these people and I mean it is in three acts and the first act is people describing how it happened to them. The second act is based on um, letters particularly from Mozambique but also some from Bisha and um, and he writes very, very funny letters, actually. I'm sorry I didn't bring some to quote, because he writes, Dear Mum and Dad, writing to you from the holiday camp of Guantanamo. Um, you know, but, but the experience of being incarcerated. And the third act was much more about what is the meaning of Guantanamo. And I suppose that was the journey I took. First of all, to go and meet these people and to hear their stories and be stunned by it and then begin to think, what does this mean for all of us? And that is the way that the play was structured. And of course, I imposed my own sense on it. Um, I can't imagine it. I mean, I can't. First of all, there's no theatre in Tipton, and I'm sure that they don't go to it. But one of the brothers of the Tipton Three said to me that after they had effigies hanging off the lamppost of his brother, he met one of the guys who hung the effigies um, in the supermarket, and they had gone to school together. And this young man said to him, look, you know, don't worry about it, it's nothing against you, it's just the kind of thing we do. So it's this dislocation between the enemy that hangs off a lamppost and somebody you know who you get on quite well with and you don't, you know, you went to school and you played sport and you know that they, it's, it's somehow this failure to be able to separate um, or, or to, to be able to join together these two two um, conceptions. Actually, I don't think that the Tipton Three have returned to Tipton because they're too well known and it's too dangerous for them. And certainly when we interviewed the families and I haven't been back, there were police outside um, guarding them. Um, guarding them, I, I expect, as much from the press as from, as, um, from you know, attacks. But I think, you know, there are, there's a nasty thing that happens in that area. And I think there's a lot of racism associated with it. And, you know, I suppose one has to see the far-right activity as an expression of powerlessness as well. But it is a powerlessness that is so full of rage against people, you know, who are in, men in the same boat as them, that it feels hard to see how you can address that.
That's true, although I actually think the power of the, the play, in a way, um, derives from s certain people, and it is about their pain rather than, rather than that. And I, it is interesting I didn't talk about it. And in particular, I mean, that Mozambique's father, because we used Mozambique's letters, and in various times um, during his letters, Mozambique was in a very desperate state, and he's a very articulate man. And his, his father, before he left, Mozambique's story is that he went to Afghanistan um, to start a school. And when the bombing first began, he took his wife and his children, well, he actually lost them, but they all ended up in Pakistan, uh, where they were living, to get away from the bombing. And he was kidnapped by, um, you know, a combination of Americans and Pakistanis, and then ended up in Guantanamo. But before that, he was held in Bagram, um, air base at Bagram is just many times worse than Guantanamo in the way it treats its um, um, detainees. And he wrote some, uh, so before he had left the country, his father had a heart complaint. And so when he was in Guantanamo, his letters were very understated, and you kind of got the feeling that this man was trying to spare his father. And then at a certain point, he just blew and he said, uh, you know, his father had written to him to say, I've had my heart operation and I'm fine. And he just wrote this letter that said, I'm so pleased to hear that you're fine, but I'm really not okay. You know, and, and, the, and there was, I think a lot of the emotion in the play, it was the deterioration of this man. And in the same way, his father, who is, I have to say, I mean, a brilliant propagandist and was a brilliant propagandist for his, for his son. You know, he would talk to anybody. Some of the relatives kept their heads down and felt that they didn't want to get into any more trouble and they would trust the British government. And some of them, like Mozambique's father, um, you know, decided you don't trust the British government because they're not going to do anything and so you have to keep talking about it. And he, um, you know, was this, he just talked to anybody and he talked very um, um, volubly about his son. And just to tell you what can happen in a play, he had the longest lines. His, the person who acted him had the longest lines. And he is a man in his 60s. And what I learned about the theater is partly is directors' hearts fall when they have a character who's a man in his 60s, because you usually gotta have a man in his 60s to act it. And men in their 60s don't remember lines quite as well as younger men. And this man had a lot, lot, a lot of um, lines to learn. And he was a very eccentric um, actor and good actor by the name of, and I began to think of him like this, baddie. And he really, after a while, he really did feel like my baddie because I had to keep sort of cutting his lines in order that he could remember it. And then come the first night 
in um, the theatre and Baddy lost it and he lost an entire speech. Now, normally in a play, it doesn't matter if somebody loses a speech because the other actors then feed each other and the interaction goes on. But this is a play that is curiously uninteractive because it's about people isolated and talking to the audience and they don't actually speak to each other. So the disaster of losing a speech is that you also lose everybody else's who went in between speech and it was only by the fact that one of the actors, the person who was paying Bush's um, um, brother, um, had a, a, an absolutely brilliant memory. And as soon as it happened that Baddy lost the speech, this guy started working out what he would have to join together in order to catch up because we were now on a different stage. So I was sitting hysterical thinking, that's it, it's press night. And they just wove it back in again, so much so that um, I began to think I'd imagined it, but I knew I hadn't imagined it. But anyway, I was sitting there thinking, I'm going to kill this man. He nearly ruined my play. And what happened? End of the day, end of the day, come out. Everybody said, oh, yes, they were very good. But that man who plays Mr. Begg, he was brilliant. <laughs> and you know why? It was his vulnerability, right? Because he realized he'd lost. He, the vulnerability that he experienced at having potentially thrown the play into the dustbin was exactly what you needed in the part. And I think it was that that also gave the play a sense of, of feeling. So I don't think it was you know, just the anger or anxiety emotions. We can take one more question, Margaret. There's been a recent. Uh, so she's had a microphone. Sorry. Sorry. No. Okay. There's been a recent uh, statement by the director of the last five about the hundreds of uh, uh, photos of uh, angels and uh, in England. And uh, how much of this is paranoia in this case? How much of this is reality? I think it's very difficult to say because of course this is all secret stuff. I mean the question one would ask if they know 200 people which is the number she quoted are plotting to kill us in England why on earth are they not arresting them? And if they don't have evidence against them to arrest them why are they telling us this? I mean she is not a person who normally does talk like this although of course you know there used to be a thing that you didn't even know who the head of MI5 was it was so secret they never spoke to the press now that's changed and maybe this is a reflection of also that you know they are trying to justify what they are doing or they are trying to um, justify their funding or perhaps they are working with the government to make us take more seriously what's, what's happening there. But I don't think there's any way of knowing how, ser how, how serious it is. I mean, one can't totally discount it because after all, bombs were let off in the tube. There have been other examples when they've talked about all sorts of hor horrifying ricin plots. And when those people were taken to court, they were all acquitted because there was, wasn't any ricin involved in the awful ricin plot. And so it's very hard to know. Go ahead. Strangely, no, and I think it's a mark of how desperate they all were that, you know, those people who talked to us were, seemed just to be very grateful that we were let, giving their stories air as opposed to, to, to what the newspapers were doing, which is writing about their relatives. And in fact, some of the most moving moments about doing that play was the relatives who refused to talk to us. Um, 
and in particular one woman who hadn't talked to us um, because she just wanted to keep her head down because she had got into so much trouble for what her brother was, you know, for the fact that her brother was in Guantanamo. He is, he's a British citizen, so he's out. And after she came to see the play, because we wrote to them all and said, you know, do, you know, come and see, we won't identify who you are, you don't have to make yourself public, just come and see. She wrote us a letter which was just incredibly moving and what it said was, you've changed my life. We and my family thought that nobody cared what had happened to us, but we discovered not only do you care, but the audiences who are coming to see it care. And in fact, she then started to speak out in public. And because she hadn't done it before, it was very moving what she did. And none of the, I mean, the people who we used came to see the play, um, and they all seemed to like what we had done. Well, we'd like to thank Jillian Slovo.